Hello and welcome to this teaching, Building Generationally. This is Kingdom Management Part 1. This is part of a series of trainings, which I call the Kingdom Management Series. There are five teachings. This first one today is Building Generationally. The other teachings include management, leadership, wisdom to win at work, and business as mission. When you have this training and these all of this content, I think you have a good sense of how to think about organizational behavior from a Christian worldview. So today we want to begin the discussion to try to help you get a glimpse of what it is to think organizationally as a Christian. If you don't have this training, if you don't have a biblical view of this, you wind up thinking like the world and living like the world, even though you claim to be a Christian. So the challenge for all of us is to live what we claim to be. We claim to be followers of Christ. We need to live that reality. So let's jump in and, and get a sense of what we need to be thinking and how we need to be thinking if we're going to be true disciples of Jesus holistically in the world that God has placed us. Well, this training is going to be presented in six sessions. This is the first session. This, the title of this session is Foundations to Rule. Uh, the next session will be Recognize Enduring Purpose. The third session will be in Understanding the C4 Principle. <clears throat> C4 people are the building blocks. The fourth session is Leading by Serving. The fifth session is Engaging in Generational Transfer. And the last session is Build Multi-Generational Organizations to Rule. You'll notice the word rule is prominent here in our um, our schedule of how we're how we're going through this material. Uh, the first and last session, we're summarizing things that are relevant to ruling. We start today with foundations to rule. We will conclude with practical tips for how to build multi-generational organizations to rule. And in between, we'll have four sessions, which will stress each of these elements of the rule as an acronym. So session two is rule, ruling through enduring purpose, recognizing the power of purpose. Session three is understanding the C4 people are the building blocks. There are really no other ways to properly build organizations except through C4 people. Now, this is very daunting, and maybe you've tried it and had, had difficulty with it. Join the club. Everyone struggles with this, but if you're going to align with God, you're going to struggle. That's a reality. If you want a no-struggle existence, well, just just go for a sinful existence. That's pretty well. That's easy. That is not. That's not horribly painful. It's uh, usually very very satisfying to the flesh, but it's never rewarding in the end. So you've got to be willing to struggle. Session four is all about leading by serving, which is sacrificially serving the purpose of God and others. That's also called love. And that's a very challenging idea. Most of us think love is an emotion. Biblically, love is not primarily an emotion. It may have an emotional content to it, but it is primarily sacrifice. And finally, session five will engage in generational transfer. That is the things we need to begin to do to prepare for the next generation. This is very different thinking from today. Today, we are not concerned about the next generation. We're just concerned about us and we live very narcissistically. This is not kingdom living. It is not Christian living. So hopefully this teaching will challenge you to step up to another level of living in Christ. So let's start with the beginning, the RK. The word RK is the Greek word for the beginning. 
It's found in scripture. For example, in Genesis 1-1, the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, it says, in the beginning, that is in the RK, God made the heavens and the earth. John 1-1 reflects this. It says, in the beginning, that is in the RK, was the word, and the word was from God, and the word was God. The starting point for all reality, the starting point for all of life, the starting point for everything is Christ and God. So we have to get very, very clear on that because it's very easy to separate God from business, from economics, from public policy, from education. In fact, over the last 300 years of humanity, we have done that with a vengeance. Human, the human beings have presumed, and many profession Christians have gone along with this, that you can separate reality from God. I'm sorry. God created everything. The periodic table is from God. Mathematics is from God. Public policy is defined by God. Social norms is defined by God. All wisdom and knowledge comes from God. You cannot separate God from anything. The idea of something being secular that is separated from God is absolutely false. The only thing that's true is rebellion. We are in rebellion against God. That's part of the fallen state, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. But if you're really clear that the RK is Christ, the RK is the triune God of the Bible, there is no other RK for anything, then you need to know, okay, what has he told us? What's he revealed to us? He's given us a word, a revelation. It's called scripture. Scripture is the most authoritative source of wisdom and knowledge we have. It's far more authoritative than sense perception or other appeals that we might make to wisdom and knowledge. Scripture gives us the word from God about how to think about all reality and how to live in God's universe. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 makes this clear. All scripture is breathed out by God, that it is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching. Teaching is learning truth and how to live in God's universe correctly. For reproof, which is correction that we need. And there's, there's correction also when we get, we get out of bounds. You know, you, there's correction within and correction without. We have error within the Christian community. This is called, when we deal with this, this is called polemics. And we have rebellion outside the community. We deal with that. We call that apologetics. So either way, reproof and correction both refer to error correction, but different contexts, either in the body or outside the body. And then the word of God is for training in righteousness. All the principles that you need and I need to live well in God's universe begin by from scripture. Every course that's taught in college, in universities, any professional training you get, any training in any context ought to begin with scripture. In the beginning, God. Any questions? There's nothing that avoids that reality. When we understand that, then we, we start going to scripture as we should, looking for revelation about how to live in every context of life. We understand creation and cosmology, starting with scripture. We understand science, technology, 
mathematics. We understand the various cultures of the world. We understand literature and writing and communication and transportation. Everything starts with God. And what is God doing and what is he calling us to do? So this training in righteousness, we desperately need so that we can be the man or woman of God and we can be completely prepared for the work assignment that we have. According to Ephesians 2, you have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb from a fallen state. We all are born fallen and we are redeemed by Christ Given that redemption by grace, it's a gift. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. And he's redeemed us and created us to serve a work assignment in his great story of history called the meta-narrative. The scripture is the, the, the guide, the handbook of all of life. If you don't have a handbook for whatever you're doing, you don't have the basic tools that you need to do it well. We have scripture illuminated by the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. So the RK is God as revealed in scripture. It's only through seeing this correctly and using the scripture can we build multi-generationally correctly. So this is the challenge, learning to really think as Christians, beginning with a very high view of scripture. I wanna give you a big picture. You, you need the high view of scripture and you need a high view, a big picture view of, of history. We have a creation. I think most everybody agrees that we have a created order. If you are a Christian, you should believe what the Bible says. And the Bible says in the beginning, God created. So we have in the beginning, the uncontested rule of the creator. There is no opposition to him. He created things as he wanted them to be and they exist as he wants them to be. And then we have the fall. The fall is where the rule of the creator, the sovereign rule of the creator is contested. Now we know it won't be, won't be successfully contested, but it is contested. There is rebellion going on right now. And all the descendants of Adam and Eve, who were the first humans who fell, who rebelled against God, all of us now are infected with a proclivity to rebellion. That means we live as humanists and we live as orphans. Orphans are people who live disconnected from the Father. We are trying to live disconnected from the Heavenly Father. We also as humanists seek to live based on our own thinking, our own sense perception, our own ideas, our own ideology. We create things, we make things up that are inconsistent with God and we try to live those things out. Nevertheless, we have a God who is very, very merciful and loving. When Adam and Eve fell, he could have dealt with their sin immediately, and that would have been the end of everything. But the fact that we exist is a testimony to something. It testifies to the forbearance of God and his redemptive nature and his mercy and love being extended to us so that we are now allowed to be created as descendants of Adam and Eve, with their fallen nature, nevertheless, he is lovingly, patiently postponing the full judgment until later. So we live in a time of forbearance where God's judgment is not fully being executed. It's a time which you would call the meta narrative of redemption. The rule of the creator continues to be contested at this time. 
humanism and orphanity are the rules of, of the world, the universe. Everyone is born into this state of fallenness, which means we, we think we are God and we live disconnected from God. That's humanism and orphanity. And yet we are in a meta narrative of redemption that will be fulfilled. And the, when the fulfillment comes, there will be a final judgment and there will be a new creation in which the uncontested rule of the creator will be restored. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's the big picture of where we're going. So I want to just now give you break down some of the details of, of the fall and the meta narrative. Just focus on that part of the big picture with this bottom graphic here. So we have God forbearing his judgment at the fall. That was his sovereign pleasure. He did not have to do that. He did it for his own purposes, to serve his own purposes. And then we have the Old Testament period and we have the New Testament period. They're different. There's a different revelation going on in both. They're certainly congruence. They're totally compatible, but there are different purposes. In the Old Testament, you have great experiments going on. Humanity is given the opportunity to try to make himself fit for the presence of God. In other words, to deal with this fallen condition. Another way to say it is to self-save. Save himself from the ultimate penalty of sin and death, which is eternal death. He has that opportunity, but in the Old Testament, over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, the revelation is it does not matter what set, what situation it is, how many generations you go, mankind never can self-save, never can fully meet God's righteous standards. And so there's limited common grace operating in the Old Testament, and the full depth of human depravity is on display. That's what we should really see as we look at the Old Testament period is the depth of human depravity and human impotency to be able to remedy that condition. So that sets up the New Testament or the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was a conditional covenant that depended upon human works to obey God's righteous standards. That totally failed. Now, when Christ comes in the fullness of time, there's a new covenant which no longer depends on us obeying God, God now transforms us through regeneration, makes us new, and empowers us with his spirit. So that now for the first time since the fall, mankind has the divine potency to be able to obey God and to do what mankind was put here to do. Remember, in the beginning, in the creation, we have the command from God as to why we're here. We have the command. In fact, it's called a blessing. We have two blessings that were given to mankind in the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. The blessings were first to multiply and secondly, to exercise dominion, which is to mean God, be God's ruling agents. And God put enough of himself into humanity so that we could do that. But the Old Testament reveals in the fallen condition, we could never obey that mandate. Now in the redeemed state where we are born again and now empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have the capacity to begin to obey the creation mandate as never before since the fall of man. 
So that's the period we're living in, this, this New Testament period where God's redemption is more clear, divine potency is in his people. The people of God in the Old Testament didn't have that. They were there to reveal the depth of depravity. We are here in the New Testament period to, to reveal the depth of God's grace to humanity. God is being glorified. He was glorified by both. The depth of depravity makes it clear that he is so much beyond us. And now this grace given to us shows what we can be when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And finally, there will be that final judgment that will lead then to the new creation and the uncontested rule of the creator will be restored. So keep in mind what we're doing, what God is doing historically over time is the restoration of his uncontested rule. Just like it was created, he was uncontested in the beginning. The fall brought rebellion and that rebellion will be suppressed and be extinguished and the uncontested rule of God will be restored. So let's get you know some more pictures of what it's like right now. What, how are we to think about our existence right now? We see the big picture of what God is doing. We recognize he's the starting point for everything. The scripture must be held in high regard. Those are key ideas you need to really build your life on. You're never gonna do well in life if you don't understand these things. Now, the next thing is to understand the distinctions between the fallen condition and the redeemed condition. So let me just go look at a few examples of this. This is what Augustine called the contrast between the city of man and city of God. Those, that was his terminology. The, the fourth century Augustine was one of the great theologians, probably between Paul, uh, who lived in the first century, and Augustine, who lived 300 years later, there was no greater theologian. So Augustine was very Pauline. He was very consistent in his understanding, a profound student of scripture. And he wrote a famous work called The City of, City of God. And in the City of God is contrasting how we should think about things from a Christian worldview versus the default condition of mankind in its fallen state. So the basic default state of humanity is death, sin and death. And the default state in the redeemed state is life. We are, we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb to life. Then we have an attitude. The attitude in the default state is pride. It's arrogance, it's self-centeredness, it's orphanity, it's narcissism, all the ugly stuff that goes with the fallen nature. It shows up as pride. And in the redeemed state, the mark of the redeemed state is a humble person. Next is grace. If it were not for God's common grace, no one in a state of rebellion against God could live, could endure, could, could last. We would all self-implode. But God has given us common grace so that even in a fallen state, mankind can exist for a season, has some ability to obey some of God's principles, very rudimentary principles, no profound principles, just rudimentary things, simple things like being nice to each other, being honest, telling the truth, not that we always are honest or always tell the truth, but we have some capacity to do that. Thieves have the ability through common grace to organize and execute a plan and actually steal something. They can do that. See, people can actually conduct war. Very wicked people like Hitler can conduct war because he follows some of God's principles through common grace. But common grace always has a limit 
and in the end, it will always reach that limit and fail. Now, in the redeemed state, in the state of knowing Christ and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have not only common grace, but we have special grace. That's more grace. It's grace to be redeemed, grace to live in that redeemed state. Then we have the source of wisdom. If we are in the rebellion, state of rebellion, our only source of wisdom is just whatever we can concoct, whatever truth we can steal from Christianity. That's what it boils down to. The opposite is true. If we know the Lord, we have access to all wisdom and knowledge because knowing the Lord, as scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so that comes from a relationship with God. It comes through the Holy Spirit. It comes through the word of God. That's what we have. That's the ability. When you got to recognize this because when it comes to building organizations, the only way you can build a multi-generational organization is through people who know the Lord. You cannot do this with people who don't know the Lord. And that's hard. It's really hard. It does not fit our ideas, our pictures. It doesn't even fit our experience many times, largely because our interpretation of our experiences are not sound. We've got to see what God's doing with metaphysical awareness that is seen from his perspective, or we get duped and we get deceived. And many who profess Christ today live very duped about reality. So that's the source of wisdom. The next one is empowerment. This goes with, with grace. The fallen condition only has human potency, which is very flawed in its ability. It's limited in what it can do. But in the redeemed state, we have divine potency. That empowers us to do things that we could never do just in our own potency. That's the ability of the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us, to empower us, to multiply our seed, to, to make our seed grow when no other seed is growing, to give us wisdom when nobody else has wisdom, to give us grace to get through things that nobody else can get through. That's divine empowerment. And then you have the metric. What is the metric? The metric for the world is homo mensura, man the measure. That's humanism. That is what's common today. So we measure success by things like money or power or influence. We don't measure success as God does. God gives us success as the metric for success is one thing. That's alignment with him, obedience to him. And we can only do that through his power. So that's des mensur, God the measure. He's the metric. He's the starting point, and he's the motive. He gives us the right motive. We, <clears throat> In our flesh, we seek to do our will according to our ways and our timing for our glory, but we know when we have the Holy Spirit, we're now dying to all of that to learn to do God's will, God's ways for God's glory. And finally, success can only be temporal for those who are in the state of rebellion. You might have what looks like success, you may somebody see somebody wealthy who's a rank pagan, someone who's very influential, successful, has power, but a rank pagan. That is temporal success only. In the end, they will stand before the judgment seat and give an account for their lives. And the mark, the benchmark will be the righteousness of God, not what they've done, not how much power they had, how much success they had, how much resources they accumulated. That won't mean anything. Ultimately, those who know the Lord can have some temporal success, 
but more importantly, they will have eternal success. They will, their names will be in the Lamb's Book of Life. They will live lives that are worthy of the Lord, pleasing the Lord, so because they're empowered by God to do that. So that's the contrast. Now, another way to think about this is the will and ways of God. I think we have to be very, very clear that God has wills and God has ways. So there, it's a four quadrants situation. So the first quadrant here shows the will of man versus the ways of man. The will of man versus the ways of man. This is our default state. This is how we approach life in our fallen condition. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and nobody tells us what to do. That's the default state. You've learned fairly quickly in life that does not work. So we have to learn to do something different. So either we learn how to do some of the ways of God or we discern some of the will of God and we do that. We don't do both generally, we'll do one. So for example, the Tower of Babel, what you have here is the will of man done according to the ways of God. The will of man was self-glory. We wanna self-glorify ourselves, but we have to take God's technology and use that to try to build this monument to ourselves. And of course, in the end, they had, they had common grace for it for a season, but in the end it got judged. This is what happens, common grace is always limited. Keep that in mind. You cannot build an organization long-term, multi-generationally on common grace. You have to build it with the rock of Christ, which is you've got to build it with people that have special grace. That's the only way you can build it well. I know you're probably, some of you are, 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 are knee flexing right now, or you're, you're, uh, you're having heartburn or whatever's going on in you because this is so foreign. You're not hearing this in any other context. You're not hearing it from your local churches. You're not hearing it in the Christian schools. You're not hearing it wherever you're, you know, you've been trained. And you're certainly not hearing it in the workplace. But you have to know God's will will prevail. The will of man will not prevail. And God has laid out for us how to align with him. You can't partially align and expect long-term blessings. You partially align, you might have some short-term blessings, but never a long time. The other way that you can semi-align is the ways of man and the will of God. Okay, well, that's, that's a little different. It's still not fully aligned. An example of this is Uzzah and the Ark. And you remember Uzzah was, uh, was a very innocent guy. He was a kind of a, a no-name guy. Nobody really knew who he was. He was just a servant. And you remember that the ark had been captured by the Philistines because of the evil, the sin of Israel. This was judgment upon Israel. And it had been held by the Philistines for a season. It, they didn't enjoy favor from having it. And so they decided maybe we need to return it. And so they said, okay, we'll return it and that'll validate whether or not we're right. So they said, okay, let's get some, let's get some oxen that have never been tamed. Let's build a cart, a brand new cart, put this thing on the cart and just let the ox go and see what happens. Well, the ox, you know, untamed ox, did, did a beeline back to Israel and didn't stop, didn't veer once to the right or left. They went straight back and they stopped when they got to Israel. And what they did is they, they took the ox, they slaughtered them, they took the the wooden cart and they made that they burnt they basically used that for a fire and they sacrificed the oxen 
as an attempt to appease God, to satisfy God. Now there's question as to whether or not that was in order or not, but that's what they did. Eventually, they realized that the ark needed to be moved to Jerusalem, which was the capital, which, yes, it should be there. That's where the tabernacle was. It needed to be back in the tabernacle. So what they did is they decided to move it just like the Philistines had. Make, build a new, new cart and put the oxen in front of it, a new oxen, and let it go. Well, they were leading and guiding these oxen, and as they went along, the the road was rough, and the uh, you know the the the, uh, the basically the Ark of the Covenant had metal feet that were designed for poles. It was supposed to have been carried by priests on poles. So these metal feet are on this wooden cart, and it's moving a little bit. Uzzah, all he does is try to steady the ark, keep it on, on the cart, which seems like such an innocent thing, a simple thing. It's the right thing to do. And God, at that point, basically his forbearance was lifted for a moment, and he, he killed Uzzah, struck him dead. And, of course, that made David mad. And David went into a pity party, and, the, and the, they stopped the movement of the ark, and the ark was... It just stayed in one place for a season. Six months later, David hears about all the blessing that the ark has brought to this place. So he finally decides, well, maybe I need to go back and get it. And I ought to move it now properly on poles with the priest as prescribed in the law. So he finally got it right. But doing it wrong illustrates you cannot do the will of God according to your ways. You can't create or use worldly ways and expect that to bless you. It's the only way to live is aligned with the will and the ways of God. This is when common grace and special grace are both at your disposal and you see favor. And you see probably a great example of that with Noah and the ark. Noah had no clue what he was doing. He's a farmer and God's told him to build an ark. Can you hear that conversation? He's saying, what's an ark? And God's saying, don't worry about it. I'm gonna tell you how to do it. I'll show you exactly what to do. And he built a perfect ark the first time. I doubt any, any human has ever built a perfect vessel, whether it's a, an airplane or a ship or an automobile or any kind of vessel perfect the first time. Well, Noah did because he had God giving him specifically what to do and how to do it. Great picture of how God provides. Whatever he calls you to do, even if you feel like you're not qualified, if he really calls you to it, there'll be provision as long as you're aligned with his will and his way. So this is the way we have to learn to live if we're going to live in God's universe well. So one of the things that we have to come to is an understanding that in the New Testament, which is the time we live in, there is this good news, which we call the gospel. And this good news has to do with God's revelation of how he's going to deal with a sin problem that was so obvious in the Old Testament and how it's going to be different now in the New Testament. So the good news is very important that we understand this good news correctly so we can understand the Old Testament well, and we can understand now the New Testament correctly. So in Christianity today, there are basically two views of the good news that are prominent today. And I'm talking here in the early part of the 21st century. So this is how we are seeing things today. We have some who view the good news as what's called the good news of salvation or the gospel of salvation. And I've got the word dualism here in the chart, referring to the fact that we 
we in some ways limit this to just salvation. We don't think about the good news having anything to do with anything other than life, other than helping me have eternal life. That's it. Then you have the right-hand column as the good news of the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus said his message was. He came with the good news of the kingdom of God, and he came with a holistic perspective, meaning he is Lord of everything. Now, what I've done here on this slide and the next slide is I've got about 22 traits of distinguishing the gospel of salvation from the gospel of the kingdom. So the left-hand column, I'm going to say to you, is a distortion of truth. There, there's some truth there, but it's a distortion. It's incomplete. It, it's twisted in some way. The right-hand column is a more complete, correct understanding that we should have. So and I've just got various concepts that we, in Christianity, we need to consider and, and come to an understanding of how we see these things. So I'm just going to do a few of them to, with this lesson. And with each lesson, I'm going to do a few more. So throughout the course of this, this training, I'm going to unpack these distinctions for you so you have more clarity on what the good news of the kingdom of God really is. So the first one I want to look at is the concept, Jesus is Lord. So for those who are dualistic, they view Jesus as Lord as he's uh, Lord in some jurisdictions. Like he's Lord, my Lord, he may be Lord of my family, he may be Lord of the church, but he doesn't really have anything to do with work. He doesn't have anything to do with public policy. So you can see I'm using the, the five jurisdiction model that you should be familiar with. Dennis has promoted that prominently, and we should all hopefully have been through that training and know that distinction. Uh, Abraham Kuyper is the one that really pioneered this distinction probably most clearly about 120 years ago. So we're very blessed to be able to be living downstream of him and, and what he saw and what he understood. So the jurisdictions are where God has ordained authority. And if he's called us to rule, you know, he will give us authority to rule. So that's important. You want to find the will of God and do the will of God, you begin to discern where you have authority. And that's where you have an assignment to rule. So the question is, wherever you're ruling, who's Lord? Who's in charge? Who's making the choices? Whose will and whose ways will govern? Well, in the gospel of salvation, they think Jesus is Lord. And so you'll hear this in things like, you know, we don't want to get involved in public policy. And, and, and Jesus doesn't have anything to do with workplace and, and money and things like that. He, you know, no, Jesus, it's just about the gospel, about getting people saved. So that's what you hear. Jesus is Lord of some. Now, they won't, if you, if you say it the way I'm saying it, they'll probably try to deny it. But the reality is what they're really saying is Jesus is Lord of some. They just don't want to admit that. Now, the truth is Jesus is Lord of all, not some, all. There is no exceptions. In the beginning, God, everything begins with him, everything. There's no, nothing that bypasses that truth. And so what God is doing and in restoring his uncontested rule through the meta narrative is Jesus is exercising his lordship through his disciples. So we have to be surrendered to Jesus in every jurisdiction, every sphere of life. He is Lord of everything. He gets to make the choices, his will, his way, his timing, his glory in every jurisdiction. So that's a big distinction between the two views. 
The next, next concept I want to look at is just Christianity itself. You see, the dualistic view of the gospel of salvation views Christianity is just religious, just religion, kind of ritual things that we do that only affect us personally. But we know from scripture that Christianity is an all-encompassing, life-defining worldview. Jesus is Lord of all, everything in your life, every aspect of your life. When Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he's saying that after a 40-day fast, he's starving to death. And he's been challenged by, <clears throat> by Satan to turn stones to bread, which he could do in a heartbeat. But he said, I've not been directed to do that. I'm not going to use my authority illicitly. I'm only going to do what I'm directed to do. Now, that's a level of living that most of us don't have any clue about how to do. Because we're not thinking at that level. We like to think like dualists. You know, that we've got to take it to heaven now. We can live the way we want to live. And that's not Christianity. Christianity is a life-defining worldview. It defines everything in life. Then what about the good news, which we commonly call <clears throat> the Bible gospel? <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus is Lord and Christ, period. Now, the gospel of salvation says Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Christ implies that he's the Savior. The focus is just on a ticket to heaven, a fire insurance policy. I'm not going to spend eternity in hell, that kind of thinking. Jesus said, no, I didn't come here just for that. In fact, he saved us. He saved us not to go to heaven. When you start looking at why are we saved, he said, I saved you in Ephesians 2 to verse 10. You've been redeemed and created to do a work assignment in the meta narrative. That's why you exist. Now, that's challenging for us. We, we're not used to thinking like that. We don't connect what we do day to day with the meta narrative very well. We don't connect it with God. We just think, you know, we go out there and we do work like everybody else. No, we're called, we're sent. If you're truly called someplace, you're sent, you're assigned, and you're there to be God's ruling agents. Jesus is Lord. And yes, he's Christ as well. So the good news is very different. It's very holistic as opposed to being dualistic, which is limited in terms of its scope. And finally, I want to talk about autonomy, and that'll be the last one for this session. Autonomy is about self-rule. Now, frankly, we like to think we're in charge of our lives, that we make our own choices, we do what we want to do, and we have that right. We think we're entitled to that, and we think it's unfair if we don't have that right. So it's real easy to get into this distorted thinking, where we, we have self-governance under self. This is called humanism. This is not Christianity. Christianity, on the other hand, is self-governance under God, where we are submitted to God. He makes all the choices. We're simply his servants. Now, that's very different. We've got a stretch there because we just we don't go wake up in the morning thinking about that we are reporting for duty and Jesus is Lord of all. We wake up in the morning, you don't want to think about how we're going to have this wonderful day and feel good and, you know, maybe have some pleasant experiences and great memories. No, you know, we need to wake up every day realizing we're servants of the Most High God. Every day. Reporting for duty. To do His will. His ways. You know, at His pleasure, for His glory. In His timing. All, that's what we're here to do. That's what Christianity is. So we have to know that self-governance 
is never self-governance under self. It is self-governance under God. By the way, if you're a parent, this is your primary objective in raising children, is producing children who are self-governed under God. It starts with you living that reality. If you don't live that reality, they probably won't either. So the challenge for all of us is to grow up and mature so we can be godly parents. And remember, we're blessed to do, th do things. We're blessed to multiply, and we're blessed to rule where we have authority to rule. That's what God blesses us to do. So we've got to step up. All right, well, here's the, uh, the second slide, uh, which, again, continues these distinctions. We'll go through all of these through the course of this training, but I wanted to show you that slide, show you what's coming up. It's very interesting to see how the correct understanding of the gospel impacts almost everything about how you think about Christianity and life. All right, so let's talk about purpose. I want to conclude our teaching here with a discussion of purpose. There is a very, very clear purpose in Scripture. It starts with the creation mandate. The creation mandate tells us that God has made man unique. There's no other animate object that has the distinction of being made in the image of God. Now, what that exactly means, theologians spend time debating that. Uh, it's not totally unequivocal, but there are a lot of things that are unequivocal about it. For example, the ability for us to express some of God's attributes we have, we can love. You know, God's an attribute, God is love. Uh, we can be merciful. We can be kind and gracious. We can be truthful. Um, we can work hard. Uh, these are things that God enables us to do. Now, there are things about God that we can't do. We, <clears throat> we can never be self-existent. We can never be eternal. We can't be omnipresent, omniscient. You know, although we can know things, we can't know all things. Um, and so there, there's both communicable and incommunicable attributes we have only the communicable attributes that God has sovereignly chosen to give to us, but we have what we need to do what we're called to do because God funds his will. That's a fundamental principle of how he works. So he tells us here <clears throat> why he's made us, his purpose in making us. And so what we want to do is get very clear. Everything in life ties to this. Everything ties to the creation mandate. Whatever you do in life, you are an agent to rule. You're an agent to reproduce. We should be reproducing biologically if we can. And if you can't do that, we should be reproducing spiritual sons and daughters. Everyone can do that. Everyone is blessed to do that. And you're blessed then to rule and train others to rule as you do under the will and ways of God. So this is the highest purpose. You've got to recognize this above any other purpose. The purpose, your purpose in working is not to go fulfill the American dream. I'm sorry, that's not what it is. It's not to go retire as soon as you can. That's not what it is. Your purpose, as long as there's breath in your body, there's reason for your being, and your purpose is to find and fulfill your role in the meta narrative to fulfill the creation mandate. That's what you're here to do. Now, because the Old Testament reveals the fallen condition that came upon man when Adam and Eve sinned, and it is desperately fallen, which is why it's called total depravity. <clears throat> total depravity is not 
mean that we can't have common grace to do some things. We can do some things aligned with God, but we're limited, very limited in what we can do. And it's never salvific. We can never self-save. So keep in mind, that's what the Old Testament is telling us. The New Testament comes along now with Christ, who is going to take care of the sin problem and now regenerate us through the power of the Spirit and empower us to live as disciples. Now, that's what we're called to do. And as we do that, we have, we have the capacity to obey the, the creation mandate at a level that has been unprecedented since the, since the fall of man. Now, I say unprecedented other than a few. There are a few people in the Old Testament, clearly, that had a lot of grace to be able to do that. So I think we have the, the types and shadows there. But now it's available to all. All those whom he has chosen has the power to be able to, to do this. The discipleship mandate is therefore the mandate to make people to reproduce ourselves. Dis only disciples can obey this mandate. And the charge is not world evangelism like everybody thinks. It is actually discipleship. It says that. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I'm in charge. I'm the RK. There is no other authority. All authority comes from him. Even the wicked people have come at his pleasure for his purpose. And God doesn't have any problem allowing Satan to have some rule and to cause problems like he did with Job. That's exactly what, what he did. So we, we will experience those kinds of situations, but Jesus has never lost control. He's executing his will. Nothing's in trouble. He's doing what he wishes for his purposes, and he's inviting us to join him and to see everything from his perspective. So he has the authority, and now he's directing us, go. Now, when he says go, many people hear that as physically go. Well, I can go just by getting up in the morning. I'm going. I get going. I can go to work. I can go and serve him wherever he sends me, whether it's down the street or on the other side of the world. You can go and not have to go on, quote, a mission trip. You go by living life every day. So you go and you make disciples, not converts. Sadly, the dualists think a disciple is a convert. Sorry, a, the convert might be a disciple. You don't know what you have when all you have is a profession of faith, lips. Lip service is meaningless. Faith without works is dead. You've got to see the works. The works don't save, but the works reveal if the Holy Spirit is in you and has redeemed you. That's what the works reveal. So in Christianity, it's not works. There, there's a place for works, and you have to understand that. It's real easy to grab a hold of grace and think, you know, works have no place. That's false. That's very false. Works have a place. The place of works is to validate the reality of whether Christ is in you or not. If he's in you, there'll be something in you that will be drawn to the word of God. They'll be drawn to align with the will and ways of God, drawn to find your place in the meta narrative, drawn to build as God builds. That's the marks of the Holy Spirit at work in people. So we're called to make disciples. If you're going to make a disciple, you're probably not going to make many. So quit thinking about the masses and start thinking about the few. You probably are assigned to a few. Jesus only had 12. He was the best there ever was. And he had three years. 
I don't think most of us could have 30 years and do very well with 12. But we're called to find our 12. If you can't find your 12, the enemy will have you distracted chasing things you shouldn't be doing. And that's out of bounds. The will of God is always the things you should be doing, not the things you could do, but the things you should do. So we have to get clear. The discipleship mandate is a mandate to make real disciples, real followers of Christ. And for most of us, it's going to spend years and years working with people, helping them grow and mature in Christ. And we do two things. <clears throat> First, once we observe them, if we see life in them, we, have, we offer to baptize them. And then we train them to obey the commands of Christ. Now, I've used the word training. Even though the text says teach them to obey or teach them to observe, that's training. Teaching somebody to do something is training. I can teach you something by talking to you. I train you by doing it with you, modeling it for you, holding you accountable to do it, testing you to see how well you can do it, helping you get better and better at it. That's called training. That's what we're told to do. Train people to obey the commands of Christ. And how many commands of Christ are there? Well, the scripture's full of them. Being a student of the word is a predicate to being a disciple. You have to be a student of the word. So all of this supports now your ability to obey the true great commission. The true great commission is the creation mandate. It isn't Matthew 28. This is where the enemy has distorted us and has led us down the road of a dualistic view of Christianity that's not producing much fruit. Well, let me talk quickly about the levels of purpose, and I'm only going to give you just some introduction, an introduction to this because we're about out of time here. There are four levels of purpose that I think I see in Scripture. Uh, the first most basic level is the individual purpose. It's the C4 principle. The C4 principle is how we discover what God has created and called us to do. So, I'm going to show you the C4 principle in the next slide. So I just want to, most of you probably have had some exposure to it. You should know this principle. This is basic. This is the simplest level of purpose you'll be able to see. How God made you. How he designed you is a clue to his intent for you. So getting to know how what he's put into you, <clears throat> your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your opportunities, your relationships, everything about life that he has orchestrated that you have very little choice on. All that's divinely ordained to guide you into alignment with him. So that's individual purpose. The next level of purpose is organizational purpose. You'll never fulfill your individual purpose except in a context of organizations. In fact, you'll have multiple organizations. For most of us, there's going to be a family. You know, a family of some sort, even if you're if you are a biological orphan, you don't know who your parents are, you probably had some family experience. And most people will be married and have, have children, have at least spiritual children, so you have family. Secondly, most of us don't work alone. We work in some context. Even if you work in a home office by yourself for a lot of the day, you're part of a bigger context. That's the organization. That organization exists to serve the purpose of God, to play a role in the meta-narrative, to be what God has created it to be in the context of the meta-narrative, and it's to obey the creation mandate. It's a tool to affect the rule of God on this earth. That's what organization should be. 
The next level of purpose is generational. Organizations are about, you know, we, we exist in an organization for our generation, and then we leave. And if you have a multi-generational organization, you may have come into it after it had been in existence for a while, and you will leave and it will carry on, which it should. So generational sometimes gets into organizational, but many times it doesn't. Most organizations, including local churches, don't last beyond one generation. That's a sad reality because we don't think profoundly about Christianity today. If we did, we would see different organizations. We'd see longer term, multi-generational organizations. I was reading an article this week about some of the best multi-generational organizations. Whenever they transition to a new CEO, the first conversation that the managing leaders want to have with that new CEO is who's, the, who's your successor? The next generation. They start thinking about that day one with the new CEO. Now that's really f profound thinking. That's really inspired, divinely inspired to think that way because you begin to see very quickly, it's not about us. It's about something bigger than us. It's about what God wants to do in and through this organization. That's a level of thinking that, again, most of us are, is foreign to most of us. So as you go up at this, the, you can tell these circles are all connected for a reason. That's the imagery I want to give you to let you know they all interact, they're overlapping, they're interconnecting. And each level, it's harder and harder to see and understand and to really grasp what it is that God is saying to you. And the highest level of purpose is the meta narrative. What God is doing big picture, long term. <clears throat> I've been thinking about these things on this slide for a long time. I'm in my 70s when I'm teaching this today. And I can tell you, I've studied scripture a lot. I've studied church history a lot. And I'm, I'm persuaded that as I see church history, there are, there are things the Holy Spirit is beginning to do at a new level. It's not that they're, they're new, it's just deeper revelation, deeper understanding. It's truth that we, we've known, but we really haven't walked in well, that kind of thing. And so I'm beginning to contextualize myself a little bit in the meta narrative. I don't make any pretense that I see it clearly. I may never see it that clearly, but I do see a role in the meta narrative that we, the body of Christ, have today, if we have the grace to see it. And I think it largely relates to clarity on the gospel of the kingdom of God. There's a new level of clarity I think we're beginning to get that we have not seen since the first century. Since the first century, the, the, the clarity of the gospel has ebbed and flowed. Many times it's been very poor. It's now kind of mediocre, and I think we're being called, called up to much more clarity on the gospel. So if that's true, then we have, all have a role to play in that, and may the Lord give us grace to see that. So these are the levels of purpose, individual, organizational, generational, and metanarrative, and we ask, ask, ask the Lord for grace to see this as he is doing it, and he's just called us to play our role in this. And keep in mind, God is sovereign, intentional, strategic. He never loses control. I hear people today and talking about what's wrong with the church. I want to encourage you to lose that. That's, that's really a wrong way to think about it. God has not lost control of anything. He's doing exactly what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, 
where he wants to do it, when he wants to do it. It's all lining up with his purpose. He is in control. Our job is to discern our role in what he's doing and recognize that when correction needs to be made, it starts with us. Correction starts with me, not with them, with me. And I always want to get myself aligned with truth and get aligned with God and whatever he's doing and know whatever he's doing is always good, even when it looks ugly. It looks difficult. God has no problem redeeming good out of that which is ugly. All right, so let me just uh, give you a quick look at the C4 principle. Most of you are probably familiar with it. So <clears throat> I've written a book titled The C4 Principle. Uh, there is a QR code on the screen here. You can go out and click on that QR code and, and go purchase the book. If you don't have it, I encourage you to get it. Uh, it's currently not available electronically. Uh, working on that, uh, I've had some difficulties, sadly, because my publisher died in the midst of publishing the book, and uh, I haven't gotten control of the Kindle account, so I haven't been able to get the Kindle book uploaded properly. There is a Kindle book out there, but out there, but it's corrupted, so don't go buy it on Kindle. Buy the paperback copy, which you can do by clicking on this QR code. So the C4 principle, simple, calling, character, capability, commissioning. I think probably most of you or many of you that are listening to this you have familiarity with it. Hopefully you do. And you know, it's not my principle. It is a biblical principle. And I've got several texts here where you can find the principle where the Holy Spirit used it to qualify people for a work assignment. Now, it's not only used for the workplace. It's also used for public policy. It should be used in the context of local churches. It should be used in the families to discern the call of God on people. The C4 principle has use in every jurisdiction. So this is a principle that we will come back to as we go through this training and, and refer to. I encourage you, get familiar with it, read the book, and uh, that'll help you get more prepared for the lessons that are coming. So we'll conclude this lesson with an exercise. Those of you that are in the round table, the business round table, either the in-person or the virtual one, we will largely focus our discussion time on the exercise. Certainly, I encourage you to bring questions. If any questions on the teaching, we want to talk about that. But we want to largely put our emphasis on applying these principles to your lives. The only way you're going to you know, change is you've got to have application. And you've got to be held accountable to what you say you believe and how you want to live it. So we'll try to do that in the context of the of the in-person and virtual business roundtables. If you're not familiar with those, those settings, I encourage you to go to my website and look at the event page. At the very bottom of that page is a link to the roundtable. It tells you about it. If you've got questions, contact me. I'll be happy to help you understand that venue. And the, the roundtable is invitation only. So if it looks like that it's suitable for you, uh, I'm going to certainly invite you to come. If it doesn't seem to be suitable, I will try to help you find another venue for you to process this truth in. So may the Lord give you grace and favor as you walk in the reality of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. His will, his ways, his timing, his glory, nothing else. That is the only thing that matters and to be live as a kingdom person for the glory of God. So may we have the grace to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.